Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I think that is one of my greatest successes is that I had vision of music, everything. I went from comedy to pop, pop, ABBA. Uh, I signed Manhattan Transfer. I signed, um, uh, you, you know, Leif Garrett, who was like 16 years old, teen star. I could recognize a trend, a, uh, what was coming next in music, and just loved, loved music. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about today's episode with music industry icon and legend Jerry Greenberg. We're going to have a great time today. We are going to learn a lot about the industry, his business, how it applies to all businesses, the ups and downs, and how to get to the next level. He's truly incredible. And you are really going to enjoy this episode a lot. For those of you who've been here before, thank you for coming again and again. I appreciate you subscribing, listening, passing it on to your friends, and also sending me all those notes and letters and texts and emails. It's really incredible. I'm very grateful for that. So great. And for those of you first-timers, thank you for showing up. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as we do. And today will be no exception. You'll have a great time. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. And I'll be glad to get back to you as soon as I can. And without further ado, let's not waste any more time and introduce our guest today. Again, you're going to love this guy. Jerry Greenberg is an American music executive and legend who at 32 years old was the youngest president of any major record company in the recording industry and received that title as president of Atlantic Records. He started his career in the music business as a drummer in the band Jerry Green and the Passengers, which he founded. The band recorded for Atlantic Records, United Artists, and DCP record labels, and by the age of 18 years old, Greenberg had already had his own record label called Green Sea Records. Jerry is world-renowned for signing such acts as ABBA, The Blues Brothers, Foreigner, Genesis, T.S. Monk, Whitesnake, Sheik, Niles Rogers, Dr. Dre and Eazy-E, Motorhead, Brownstone, and also was responsible for introducing Mariah Carey to Sony president Tommy Mottola. In addition to signing acts, Jerry has worked with some of the greatest artists in the music business, including ACDC, Aretha Franklin, Bad Company, The Bee Gees, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Dr. John, Dusty Springfield, The Eagles, Emerson, Lake & Palmer, Eric Clapton, Yes!, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, and Michael Jackson. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. There's no one like this guy in the world, and I know you're going to like him a lot. Please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Jerry Greenberg. How are you? I'm still trying to live the dream. <laughs> me too. I will tell you this. It's so fascinating being across from me because all your life, if you really think about it, as crazy as it sounds, you were at a stop sign somewhere in 1996 or you were at the mall in 2007. You think, could I have crossed paths with somebody who was there? And... In 1986, I had a friend who was in the press, and he said, listen, I just have to let you know that the person I was bringing that had the other press pass, I wasn't going to use it, and I'd love to give it to you. You can pick it up at Madison Square Garden. And I said, oh, what am I going to? And I was from Boston. He said, you're going to the 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records. I am? He said, yes, you are. And he said, listen, you're going to have the press pass and you're going to have access underneath Madison Square Garden. There's going to be rooms where people are going to be. There's going to be food. You're going to be able to go in and out. It's like an all access pass. And you're going to be sitting on the floor. I I'm going to be sitting on the floor. Yeah, you're going to be like in the eighth row, but you can go in and out and do whatever you want. That to this day was the greatest show I've ever seen in my entire life. And I can share this with you because I have to believe you were there with me. And I have to believe that we cross paths walking back and forth because there's only a hundred different people from the press is there and you're there backstage. But the thing that I remember most about anything is I was just sitting there waiting for the next act and it happened to be the last act. There was no introduction. There was nothing. Robert Plant walked down on stage and it was like a f***ing jack-in-the-box. The place erupted for him. It was like no one existed on the show before. John Bonham's son was playing drums and no one sat down from the time he walked out until the time he finished. And... At that moment, I thought to myself, I thought I knew what star quality was, but at that moment, it was solidified in my brain what it really meant and that you could make it as an artist. Anybody could make it and do really well and make a difference and inspire people. But then there's that next gear, that fifth gear of artist that is just so extraordinary that they can move people that much. And what I wanted to ask you about this, because I know you were there that night. You had to have been there. Yes, I was there. When you're around the artist and backstage, every artist has the lineup. Okay, Debbie Gibson, I guess I'm going on here. Foreigner, okay, I'm here. And Led Zeppelin is going on last. Do all the artists know their pecking order in the business or is there something in their brains that tells them like Lou Graham I could close the show I mean me and Robert Plant could switch over here or do artists understand in the music business their place oh yeah I mean, there's no question and I don't think anybody had any qualms to the fact that Led Zeppelin broke up in 19, you know, 81 or 82. And now all of a sudden they were going to do, you know, this Atlantic uh, 40th. So, um, you know, it's uh, everybody was expecting something great to happen at that show. And, and the great thing was that Led Zeppelin performed. Now, you had seen many shows up to that point you weren't even i believe working with atlantic records at that time you had left but obviously you're a big part of their and you, you ended up coming back but you'd seen many many concerts in your life you'd seen many compilation shows in your life so when that show was over and you came home to your apartment or your house or wherever you were, did you sit down and say to yourself, that's uh, the greatest show I've ever seen? Uh, let me let me t tell you what happened at that show. And you'll see it in my documentary. We're 
sitting there watching the show with my wife, and in the documentary, my wife says, Jerry nudged me and said, I'm gonna sign that kid. And I said, what kid? What are you, what are you talking about? And he said, Jason Bonham, John Bonham's son. I'm gonna put a band around him and I'm gonna sign him. And you asked me what I did after the show was over. I went backstage, I saw Jason, and I said to Jason, let me ask you a question. Have you thought about putting a band together? And Jason said, well, yeah, I got a guitar player, but I need a lead singer. I said, listen, I've left Atlantic. I'm starting my own new record label with Sony. I said, I want you to be the first act I sign. We shook hands, we made a deal. I put him together with Bob Ezrin, great producer. The first album came out, Disregard with Time for Dime, Disregard for Timekeeping, and we had a platinum album. So I was smart enough at that concert to recognize the fan base that Jason already had just from being John Bonham's son and playing drums that day with Led Zeppelin, signed them, put a band together, and the band was called Bonham, and we had a platinum record. Now, permission to speak freely? Of course. Okay. So you work for Atlantic Records for a long time. You're back there to honor that company's 40 years in the business. You are their guest. You work for another company now. They put this man on this show. Presumably, they want to start a relationship with him for Atlantic Records. Who, with Jason? Yes. No, they weren't smart enough. <laughs> but how would they know? You didn't give him a chance. You went backstage in one second and you shook his hand and made a deal. You took him right away from him. But he never called me up and never once said to me, hey, guess what? Atlantic has the same idea you had. You know, I think I'll go with Atlantic. I mean, they, they it didn't hit them. I don't feel bad at all. Would you feel bad if somebody did that to you? No. Not at all. It's every man for themselves in this business. Do you know how many acts I, I, I went to see? Clive Davis was sitting next to me, or uh, RCA was sitting next to me. <coughs> That's what made the game interesting. So which person, when you sat down in the show, you're going to see an artist, you sit down in the show, and they're sitting next to you, do you say in your mind, oh, fuck, here we go again. I got to go against this motherfucker. This is the toughest competition I have. Which one was it? Well, listen, Clive was, we were a New York company at Atlantic Records. Um, Clive was a, a great competitor, uh, a, a great competition finder of artists. Uh, RCA was there, Capital was there. All the companies were there, but Atlantic Records, because of its reputation, for finding great artists and being the rock label of the of the century during those days with Stones and Zeppelin and ACDC, we didn't really have a lot of competition. You know, we, 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 we would show up at, at an audition and most of the time the artists wanted, wanted really to be with Atlantic Records. It wasn't a question of, you know, uh, competing for money or anything like that. When, when we'd go and see an act nine times out of 10, yeah, there could be other record companies there, but we, we were kind of, we led the pack. I mean, Rolling Stone signed with Atlantic Records. We were the third offer from the top. So it wasn't about money. Mick wanted to be with Ahmed Erd again, and, and that's what it was about. What does that mean, the third offer from the top? Meaning, if, meaning, uh, RCA offered a million, Columbia offered 800,000, Atlantic offered 750. Were they man? sealed bids? No, everybody, no, everybody knew what everybody was kind of offering, you know. Uh, it but couldn't Mick sit down in the office and say, listen, 
I'll sign with you guys if you give us the extra 250 No, it never came to that. Mick always said, you know, Ahmed, I took less money to be with you. <laughs> he, would, he would make sure he'd say that. Tell our audience the first time you were in a competition with one of those labels and you really wanted an artist and you found out that they signed with somebody else and they did really, really well with somebody else. Oh, wow. I, th I think one of the first times, and it's in a book, was I got a call from the manager of Aerosmith. And he said, listen, I just signed this band out of Boston and they're going to play Max's Kansas City. I want you to come and see them. And I said, okay, great. So I told Ahmed and... I would never forget, we we showed up, Ahmed Erdogan showed up, my myself, my head of my English company was in town, he came, the head of A&R came, there was about five of us, and we're sitting at a table, and sure enough, right next to us was Clive Davis, Columbia Records, on the other side was RCA Records, he got every major New York record company out to see Aerosmith. The band comes out on stage. The first song they sing, Steven Tyler's looking and exactly and imitating Mick Jagger. He was wearing these scarves and, you know, he, he was really like almost impersonating Mick Jagger. We had just signed the Stones. By the second song, Ahmed leans over into my ear he says, we're out of here. This kid's trying to be Mick Jagger. We, you know, we got a Mick Jagger. We don't need this band. I said, no, 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 you got to stay. Manager's a good friend of mine. Please just stay. So I knew Ahmed was turned off already on the band. But after every song, I got up and I applauded like crazy. So I would see Clive Davis looking over at me, seeing me standing up, applauding like crazy. Almond looked at me like I was crazy, whatever. The show gets over, and the manager comes over to me, and she says, oh, my God, I saw you. I was watching you. You loved the band. I said, listen, we got a problem. Almond didn't want, Almond hated the band, wanted to leave after the second song. I said, what I did was for you. He said, what do you mean? I said, I want you to tell Clive that Atlantic flipped out over the band, was ready to make a big offer. And Clive, will, whatever you tell him Atlantic's giving, Clive will up it. He said, really? I said, yeah, just go over there and tell him. Atlantic's crazy about this band. And sure enough, he did it. And sure enough, he got an extra, he told me, he said, I got like an extra 15,000 on signing because uh, yeah, Clive was watching you and I told him Atlantic was making an offer. And of course, we ended up losing a very, very big band. I, I, I told Steven Tyler the story. I told um, the manager did a book, an Aerosmith book, and he put it in there. So uh, that was a tough one. The same thing happened with Billy Joel. I was the first guy in L.A. to visit, see Billy Joel play in a club. I told Ahmed and Jerry about him. They came out to California. They, Billy auditioned for Jerry and Ahmed. I don't know how, what happened, but then the next day they auditioned for, Cl Billy auditioned for Clive, and Clive signed him. So there were a couple of big ones that got away, no question, <laughs> but there were also a couple of big ones. Uh, you know, Clive lost Led Zeppelin because he had Jimmy Page. Remember, he had Jimmy Page in the Yardbirds. And Jimmy left and formed Led Zeppelin, and we signed him. So it kind of evens out, you know. But Clive was probably our biggest competitor during those days back in the 70s when it came to finding artists. In the comedy world, it's very common for an artist to say, oh, look at him, he's doing the nuances of that guy. I do that. When Aerosmith launched and Mick first saw Steven Tyler, did he feel the same way you guys did? Oh, I have no idea. I, I, uh, I've, did Mick Chagger think Steven Tyler was imitating him? Um, probably not, uh, you know. But um, listen, that's... 
what makes the business interesting, right? There's a lot of artists out there that are like a lot of artists. Well, I think what's fascinating about you that blows me away, and as you can look at all the photos on the wall here in your office, what's interesting about you is that you don't have a lane. You don't have one type of artist that you were into. On one hand, you're signing the Rolling Stones. On the other, you're signing ABBA. I think that is one of my greatest successes is that I had vision of music, everything. I mean, uh, listen, I signed I signed Paulie Shore before any before he even hit on MTV. I learned from Jerry and Ahmed. Uh, remember, uh, we, we signed Little Jerry Baby. Wexler. Jerry Wexler and Ahmed Erdogan and Nesui Erdogan to look for talent. Look for talent. That's the main thing. Now, remember, they signed Little David Records. So we had George Carlin and Flip. Flip so, Wilson. Flip Wilson. So I learned about comedy and... I, I signed Red Fox. I did a comedy album with Red Fox. And that album was one of the dirtiest albums that existed. Wash My Ass or yeah. something. Yeah, I, I did that deal. So I went from comedy to pop. Pop, ABBA. Uh, I signed Manhattan Transfer. I signed, um, uh, you, you know, Leif Garrett, who was like 16 years old teen star. Put him, I mean, Leif Garrett on Atlantic Records, what are we talking about? But the main thing with me, because I was a musician and I was a drummer. But you also signed people like Major Harris. Right. Oh, no, I went to Philadelphia. <laughs> I signed Major Harris and Blue Magic from a label deal out of Philadelphia. I recognized that Philadelphia was a town that was, I, I, Detroit, I, I signed, um, uh, I signed George Clinton's backup band called the Funky Horns and his backup girls called, uh, I forget what they were called. So I would pick area, Detroit was a hotbed, New York, of course, is a hotbed. Philly was a hotbed. Atlanta was a hotbed. Miami, New Orleans. You had to, you know, check out areas, check where the artists were coming. I was very lucky because I was thinking the other day. I was very lucky because the first artist that I signed at Atlantic Records in 1968 that I signed, I found the record. I went to Jerry Wexler. I said, boy, this record sounds like a hit. I said, I want to make a deal. They're, they're looking for a deal. He said, sign it. It was Archie Bell and the Drills, a record called Tighten Up. And it won gold. So I, I looked at my, wow, wait a minute. This is going to be easy, you know, finding talent. But I was very, very lucky. Uh, and I say lucky that uh, I could recognize a trend, a, uh, what was coming next in music and just loved loved music loved r&b especially tell our audience was there a formula back then or a system or a blueprint to where okay so your job is i'm going to go in that room seize the day and get this artist to sign and then there was there a step-by-step -step system of how to get their work out to the masses to where something became a hit and a step-by-step -step system of how many albums got sent to each store and what the stores were across the world. Let's take somebody who completely is... How about Foreigner? Okay, Foreigner. So Let's you sign Foreigner and they have nothing. They have nothing out. Nobody's heard them. They're playing clubs. What happened? They're not even playing clubs. Okay, I got a call from the manager, and he said he's been working for over a year putting a new band together. It's with Mick Jones, who used to be in Spooky Tooth, and some other English guys, and he, they finally found a great lead singer, and 
they're cutting demos and he wants me to hear the band and um when bands cut demos were there one song two songs three no it was songs. three and actually uh, in in my documentary you're going to see the sheet that he sent me it was three songs but feel like the first time was one of the songs he sent over a demo went around the office the bottom line was i wasn't too sure and i said Listen, I'm not too, I'm still I'm not too sure yet. And he said, "No, you got to see the band. You have to see the band." So I said, "Okay." I went to the rehearsal. I saw the band. After the second song, I said, "Oh my god, I want to sign them." And like what I do with most of the artists that I get involved in, they're signed. I let them know right away. You know, I'm a drummer. You know, I'm like you guys. I'm one of you guys. And I got up and I said, let me, you know, whatever that song they played, I said, let's do that again. I want to play drums. And they said, okay, sure. They got a kick out of it. So I went up and I played drums. And I kind of passed the test that I could play. So now Mick says to me, Jerry, we're talking to two other labels. I said, who are you, who are you talking to? Talking to Clive Davis at Arista. And we're talking to A&M, Jerry Moss at A&M in L.A. I said, well, listen, you're talking to two very, very good labels, but we're better. We can do a better job. I said, now, with no disrespect to A&M, but they're based in L.A., and we're based in New York. So now you should be with a New York record company because you're from New York and you're rehearsing here in New York and you're going to make your record in New York. So I said to them, listen, I'm telling you that you deliver me a gold record and I'll break this band, a, a, a good record. Uh, I love Feel Like the First Time. Give me a couple more songs like Feel Like the First Time. And the bottom line was they signed with Atlantic. Some acts we leave 100% alone, other acts I'll go to the studio. My A&R guy will be at the studio. I'll get kind of daily reports. Hey, they, they just finished this song. We'll listen to a rough mix. So we, uh, as much as we could be involved in the making of some of these records, we stick our nose in. Remember, Atlantic had its own studio. I could just walk right down the hall and hear Cream recording or hear Aretha recording or any of the acts that would record at Atlantic. So in the 80s, okay, so this manager works with Foreigner. They put the album together. How do you get the music in your office? Is it a reel-to-reel? Is it cassette? What is it that your office gets before it gets made into albums so well, you can well, listen to it? On the, most of the time, it's a demo on a disc. So it is on the disc. Yeah. So they put it on an album. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so you get in the office and you say to them, this is good, we're going to do it, and we're going to make it happen. So now the next step that must happen is you have to press a certain number of records and have a certain number of records made and packaged, or do you talk to the radio stations first to see if they'll play it before you make the commitment? The next step after the record is made is a marketing meeting. That's when you get the whole staff in a room, you play them the record, you tell them what you think is gonna be the plan. And usually the plan is to put out a single first, a 45 that would go to radio and get the people familiar. So they're in with, a conference room and they're listening to the entire 45 to 60 minutes of this album. Correct. And after the album goes off, people go around the room and say, what do you think the single should be? And did everyone in the room universally say it should be feels like the first time? Yes, that's how we all came to that conclusion. And so then the next step is, do you make the albums then call the radio stations or do you, how do you do it? No, you put the single out and call the radio stations. So th th you put feel like the first time out first. As a single. No album. No album. So it's in the record stores. It's a 45. But you have to deliver it to the radio stations to play it. Correct. 
is there somebody at every radio station that someone in your office calls and says, I need you to put this record on? Yeah, all over the country we had what we call a, a local promotion man. A guy who's in California, a guy who's in Texas, a guy who's in Chicago. That guy visits those radio stations every week. That guy in Chicago has a relationship where he walked in and said, listen, Atlantic just signed a new band, very excited, call Foreigner, listen to this record, we think it's gonna be a hit. And that's how it happens. Okay, so let's just take Chicago. The guy goes to all the rock stations in Chicago. Hey, let's do one better, shall we? Let's take WHCN in Hartford in your backyard. Okay. Which was the album-oriented rock station there in Hartford. Correct. Okay, let's take there. So you go there, you give it to them. How often do they commit to playing something? Well, usually, they'll, uh, if you get a record added at an FM station like that, you usually get three, four, or five plays a day until they get requests. And sure, you know, as soon as they start, the phones start ringing, people start calling the station, will you play that record again, this, that, and the other thing, blows up. You know, and so they increase the rotation to maybe ten times a day. Exactly, it goes from light to medium to heavy, just like that. Incredible. And so then, how does Billboard start getting involved back in that time? And Dick Clark's Top Forty, and how does that come into play? Well, they don't really get involved until the single is out, and until it starts showing up on. Uh, you know, in record stores and gets on their top 100 chart. That's when a billboard notices about. So billboard calls every record store and finds out which albums are selling the most. Correct. Now, financially, how do you make it work as a distributor or company? Because Atlantic, they didn't use a separate distribution company. They used their own platform as well. So let's say you release the Foreigner album to every record store in the country. How many were there back then, approximately? Oh, God, hundreds, hundreds. So let's say 300. Right. So the album is a hit, and it's off the shelves. It's gone. How quickly can you make new ones and send them out to all those record stores again? No, we, you know, we had a, our own pressing plans. We would know, you know, record stores aren't stupid. If if they got in a hundred and they sold seventy five in a week, they're going to order another hundred right away. So the interesting thing about Foreigner is that before Foreigner album came out, Boston came out. Do you remember the group Boston? Of course I'm from and, Boston. And, and it blew up. Blew up. I mean, fastest selling album in history. Brand new band, two, three, four million. It was like, and the manager of Foreigner would come into my office every day as soon as Boston blew up and as soon as Foreigner's album was ready to come out. I won to be like Boston. I want to sell a million records. Now, a new artist to sell a million records out of the box is pretty, you know, one in a million shot. Let's let's be honest. But sure enough, with the success of Feel Like the First Time, sure enough, when the album came out and started, all those different cuts started to get played all on, on HGN in Hartford. That album took off like a jet, like a jet. And, you know, Foreigner's first album sold double, triple platinum. I mean, it was unheard of. It was the fastest selling breakthrough record for Atlantic Records. I mean, Zeppelin didn't break, you know, took them two albums. Uh, uh, ACDC took them four albums. So Foreigner really was the one for Atlantic and for me personally as a great signer that just blew out out of the box out of the box 
Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office and Everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. One of the things I never understood back then is these bands would tour and they'd only normally do one show in the arena. They never set up multiple shows. They went to one town, they sold out, then they went to the next town. Why didn't more bands do what... I don't think they thought they could sell out two shows. Stones did, used to do it in New York. Remember, I yeah. think Stones would do two or three shows. Um, Zepp, I think, possibly went into two shows, maybe. But most of these bands, you know, back in those days, if they could sell out one show and move to the next city and and make their money merchandise and sell out and this and that uh that's what they what the game plan was in those days tell me the first band that you worked with that went from the nba arena to the stadium that the football games are played in so went from oh 15 my to God. twenty thousand was, to sixty thousand. I, I, I can I honestly and truly tell you that that was Atlanta, uh, that was Led Zeppelin, and uh, I was in the inner circle with Led Zeppelin. It was only it was a very tight knit inner circle. Uh, what I mean by that is there was only two people from Atlantic, Amador, again, and myself that were close to the band. 
I had a great manager, Peter Grant, who I was close with, road manager, Richard Cole, lawyer, Steve Weiss, and a couple of other people like Cameron Crowe or Lisa Robinson, who is a writer, that were close to the band. So there was only very few people around that band during those days. And Peter Grant called me and he said, we just booked a gig in um, Atlanta Brave Stadium. I said, what? He said, yeah, we booked a gig in Atlanta Brave Stadium. We're going to be the first band ever to play a stadium. Why did he choose Atlanta? I have no idea. I have no idea. So I, I get the call from Peter Grant. Led Zeppelin's going to play Atlanta Brave Stadium. We want you to make sure you come to the gig, yada, yada. I said, okay, great. Fly to Atlanta. I'll never forget this. And, of course, I have a all-laminate Led Zeppelin VIP pass. I go backstage and walk up on the stage, and Led Zeppelin now is playing to 79,000 people in the Atlanta Braves football stadium. And I looked at Ahmed and I said, let me ask you a question. What do you think the guy sitting at the end of the stadium up in the top row sees? Of course they had projectors and this and that. But I will never ever forget that, that show. In that particular show, they had doves that they released from a cage, whether, I don't know whether it was the beginning or Stairway to Heaven or whatever, and all the doves got crazy, you know, getting out of the stage on, uh, you know, with the lights and everything, and one of them landed on Robert Plant's hand. And there's a very famous picture, I'll see if I can find it for you, a very famous picture, Robert Plant, Atlanta Brave Stadium with a dove uh, in his hand, you know. But um, that was the beginning of stadium gigs. I mean, that was, I, I believe if you do some homework, you check, that was probably the first big stadium date ever in the history of rock. And then they played Tampa Bay. It was Atlanta Braves, then they went to Tampa Bay. And they were doing stadiums. I mean, unbelievable. Now, in terms of the contracts, when you say you signed bands, okay, some bands had managers, some had lawyers, some had both, okay? They see Clive Davis's contract, they see A&M's contract, they see RCA's contract, they see your contract, they see the percentages, they see the advance that sometimes you might give, and presumably every contract isn't worded exactly the same and presumably the percentages aren't exactly the same. Were you ever in a situation where you're sitting down with an artist and they say, listen, Jerry, we love you, but Clive, he's only taking this percentage and you're taking this percentage and if you can match that percentage, then we'll go with you. Or did they say, well, you want too much on the back end, it's too rich a deal for you guys, we need more? It always came down to negotiations. I'm sure in some instances I, I may have had to match another record company's deal, but we were such a hot company, and we were. I, I always say to him, listen, if I have to give it to you in royalties, that means maybe I have to spend less in marketing. I say, you know what I mean? We're a company that we spend a lot of money in promotion. We have more guys out in the field doing radio promotion than any company. We always won record company of the year. We always won this, that. Um, so most of the time artists would take a lesser deal. It wasn't about the money. It was about making sure that they had access to the president, who was me, who always answered every phone call, who always showed up at the gig, who always went over to the recording studio if an artist wanted an opinion. 
So it was the team. It was like, okay, do you want to play for the Patriots or do you want to play on the team like, you know, whatever. So we never had a problem when it came to competing, uh, when it came to money, you know. Uh, maybe for some reason they liked another record company because they had friends there or they wanted to be with RCA. But I, I don't think we ever, ever lost a band because of money, because we couldn't either match the deal or make it better or whatever. We, you know, it, it never came to that. Tell me the first time in your music career that you noticed your first red flag where the artist felt they were more powerful than the record company and they took a stand and where you saw the first shift in the music business. What was the first sign that the music label business was starting to crack in your opinion? A lot of artists always felt that maybe they should have their own label or their own production company or they could do it better. And, and this, uh, I was fortunate enough not to have any artists that felt that way. Uh, I've always been around artists that wanted to work with me or wanted to work with the company that I was involved in. Um, Listen, Michael decided he wanted Jackson, that is. Michael Jackson decided, you know, in 1990 that he wanted his own label and formed his own label and hired me to run his own label. So there were artists that did later on in their careers decide that they wanted to really control their own destiny and have their own labels. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So I don't expect you to tell me everything. But let's just take an artist at Atlantic who's doing well, a great artist you sign, and let's take a 100% pie of all the money coming in. What percentage would the record company make after expenses and what percentage would the artist make? And I'm talking about with everything, with publishing and this and that. If you looked at everything, the average artist would make what percentage of the net profits and the record label would make what? Did it end up being 50-50? Yeah, up... I, I would say it ended up being close to 50-50. Got it. So that was the goal, that it would end up 50-50. So Michael Jackson starts his own label. Now, granted, he's probably doing 50-50 deals with the artist that he's signing at the end of the day. But his work, what's he making out of the 100%? I have no idea. He, Michael Jackson, I'm sure, had one contract with Sony 
making whatever that deal is. 60-40, 70-30. Well, you know how sometimes you make deals and it's like Fox when they got football. They made these deals. They were paying people so much. They lost money for years until they started making money. I would presume that Sony said the Michael Jackson, I mean, they wanted to make some money, but I imagine that he made the lion's share of the money because to have somebody like that under their label was huge. Right. Well, mo- uh, mo- most artists that could sell millions and millions of records would t- take the lion's share of the record. Uh, and that's just the way it worked when you're successful and you're selling a lot of records. Tell our audience the first artist that came to you to renegotiate their deal. Oh, that's. Uh, I think we probably renegotiated a foreigner's deal right after the first record. Uh, but certainly, you know, I once had a, a line that I said to a manager, don't punish me for success. And, uh, you know, but most of the time we got punished. Most of the time, you know, if we did what we were supposed to do and break the artist and the artist had five albums or six albums they would always come in and say well you know look at what we're selling we we want a better deal blah, blah, blah. now you didn't necessarily have to give it to them uh you know you could have said hey listen i got you for five albums go uh you know but most of the time everybody wanted to stay friendly and everybody tried to work it out and and uh was the standard deal you tried to get five albums from the artist yeah were there some artists that you just like when you signed the rolling stones and the astro five they were like you're not getting five jerry you know we'll give you two albums see how it goes right what's the least uh, amount of albums you did a deal for somebody no most of them most of them uh you were able to get five or six uh I think the first, believe it or not, ACDC deal was for 10 albums, believe it or not. But the, listen, they weren't known and they were brand new and, uh, you know, we had options. Uh, usually when you sign an artist, there's always uh, options because, God forbid, they, you know, they don't so You don't want to have to be obligated to pay a half a million dollars for an act that only sold three records so um you know but listen back in the 70s and in the 80s when i was in really running day-to-day operations it was just a wonderful time it was about music it was about everybody loving music everybody getting along no corporate bunch of bull um uh, Warner Communications was great. They let Atlantic run like Atlantic always ran, and we never caught heat. And, uh, you know, I hope it's like that today. So there's certain artists, they release their first album, and it's like shot out of a can, like Tracy Chapman, you know, right. Fast Car. Not a person who was known for her outlandish performance skills she's sitting down or standing and playing guitar like a van morrison kind of thing but just killed it but then the second album might not do as well right but then there's other artists like aerosmith where the first album doesn't do as well right and then it goes like but when the first album does well i think to myself well of course it does well they spent 10 years working on that album or five years working on that album and the next album they have to write in a year of course that one's gonna suck how do you figure out when an artist does better on the second album listen there's there's no magic formula i'll give you an example okay we signed a group called hall and oats never heard of them the first album comes out, doesn't do that. Was well. that Abandoned Luncheonette? What was it? Abandoned was the second album. I love that album. Okay. I loved it too. Uh, re- uh, you know, there's n- no question. Uh, we blew it. I mean, we, you know, whatever happened, happened. How'd you it was blow just it? a mid-chart record. Now, it was a three-album deal. So they make the third album 
they come and they say, we're going to go in a different direction. <laughs> and they get Todd Rundgren. And they go and they make a rock record. Todd Rundgren, we got to get you a woman, Todd Rundgren. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect, but it was just, I, I forgot the name of it. And it was a rock record and it was horrible. So I say to the manager, the manager comes to me and he says, you know, you have an option to pick up. What are you going to do? I said, listen, if they're going in that direction, I don't want them. I said, they're not, you know, they were a blue-eyed soul group from Philadelphia. Now they're making rock records. I mean, forget it. And I gave them a release. Biggest mistake I've ever made. Because <laughs> <laughs> now they go to RCA, and they go back, and they make a record like a band of luncheonette. Right? Rich Girl and Sarah Smile. <laughs> and, you know, I'm still friendly with those guys. When when I I saw him playing a concert out here about a year ago and and I you know I was with John Oates and I said you know I really screwed up I gave I said but you know what the other thing believe it or not and I remember this was that the manager came to me and he said listen if you don't pick up the option I got a deal with RCA for a million dollars. He said, do me a favor, just don't pick up the option. So that coupled with, are they gonna make a rock record? You know, I mean, I, it was almost like a, he was begging me not to pick up the option because he could make a million dollars with RCA. And listen, hand it, hand it to RCA. They, they wrote a big check and they got a big group. Tell us the first time an artist you over I uh, it never happened you've never had your feelings hurt by a business deal that an artist did against no you. no no uh, listen I lost White Snake I signed White Snake and I did three albums with White Snake but corporate I didn't break the band there was an option coming up they wanted to stay with me and corporate had the controls on my budget and I had to let White Snake go because I couldn't pick up the option. They wouldn't give me the money. It had nothing to do I love David Coverdale and I love that band. And believe it or not, I got a call from David Geffen and he said to me, Listen, we're thinking about signing White Snake. Why'd you drop him? And I said, I didn't drop him corporate drop them they wouldn't give me the money and pick up the next record so i said but david coverdale's a star sign that band so you know I, I i couldn't hold anything against the band it wasn't the band's decision it was corporate's decision not to pay them but uh, that was w one of the instances of of me losing you know losing a big act but I could never, in my career, I don't believe, maybe somebody will hear this interview and say, oh my God, I got into a big fight with Jerry Greenberg, he wouldn't do this or he wouldn't do that. But I, th I, I think I have a great reputation in the business, uh, a reputation where you, you shake my hand and we have a deal. We don't have to draw up a piece of paper or anything like that, and it's stuck by it. And I'll give you an example of that, if you don't mind. I would love it. Okay. There's a, a promoter named Shelly Finkel. Of course, who, a New England promoter. A New England promoter. Then they went into boxing. Then he went into boxing. So Shelly calls me, sends me a demo on a band. He says, I love this band. I'm going to manage them. Will you sign them? I said, sure. And I heard the demo. I said, Got, great. So we make a deal for $125,000 delivered. Okay. In other words, the first band was going to cost one hundred twenty-five thousand. If they could make the band for if they made the record for a hundred, they put twenty-five in their pocket. Calls me, says, "Listen, I got a chance to get them with this producer. He's only available right now. I know it takes a while for the contracts to be drawn. I'm going to lay out the money. I'm sending them to Florida to make the record." I said, "Great." They make the record, and of course lawyers it goes back and forth and back and forth the contract's not signed he brings me the record and he said here's the record's done 
So I, I said, oh, great, I'll hu hurry up the lawyers, we'll get the contract done. I listened to the record, I don't like it. I hate the record. Now I play it for the staff. The staff hates the record. I play it for Ahmed. I said, Ahmed, the new band we're signing, I'm not sure about this record, what do you think? I hate it. He said, there's not no hits. I said, oh, okay. He said, how much you pay for this? I said, 125000 He said, oh my God. He said, the contract signed? No, the contract's not signed. Well, then, you, then forget it. Just tell him, go, go, where. I said, no, I, I shook hands with the manager. He said, Jerry, tell the lawyers, forget it. Okay, Almond. So I go upstairs and I say to the lawyers, listen, do me, uh, I can, actually I go to accounting and I say, I want you to give me a check for 125,000. I said, contract's not signed, but he's delivering the record. So they cut me the check. Listen, I'm still, I'm the president of the company. Nobody's gonna fight with me. So I don't even tell Almond. Shelly comes in the office and I say to Shelly, I got good news and bad news. He said, what's the good news? I said, good news is I got your check for 125,000. He said, well, what's the bad news? I said, we hate the record, we're not putting it out. I'm not finishing the contract. He said, you're kidding. I said, no. I said, listen, I shook your hand, we shook hands on the deal. You went down, you made the money, even put the money on. But here's the deal. You sell this to another record company, I get back the first 125,000. He said, absolutely. So I drop a piece of paper. That's Jerry Greenberg, man. I mean, I didn't have to do that, right? I could have listened to Ahmed. I could have said, there's no contract. Sorry, you're stuck with it. Gegesund. No. I gave him the check. And that's one of my great stories. And what happened with the band? They never made a deal. Couldn't sell the record. Never got a dime. So my ears were right, my <laughs> my money was wrong, and that was that. But you know, you live some, listen, I could have put the record out, spent another $100,000 trying to promote it and would have gone in the garbage. So who knows? Did you yeah. ever think to yourself, let me sit down with Shelly and say, listen, I know I shook your hand, we're not gonna put out the record can I just pay you what you spend in Florida? Um, you know what? I think he's, I, I think I might have said to him, how much you spend? He said, oh, he spent the whole 125. Oh, I might have. I, I don't remember. But Shelly will, Shelly to this day would confirm that story and say, Jerry's the only guy in the record business. You shake his hand and you know you got a deal. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatru, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. You almost have to create your own momentum today to even get to a 
a, a record company. But the problem for the record company is going to have is they're going to start, these kids are going to start their own record company. The hell with Interscope, the hell with Republic, the hell with Atlantic. So record companies better wake up and figure it all out. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.